Hi, you guys, and welcome to this week's episode of On the Slab, the film podcast where we watch movies and then take them apart to see how they tick. Now, this is one of the last episodes that we have that belong to the period of time where we called ourselves, Do We Hate This Movie? Um, And this week's episode is all about the 2010 film Tron Legacy. Now, this film has everything. It's got Olivia Wilde. It's got no plot. It's got Jeff Bridges with a beard. It's got Jeff Bridges in CGI. It kind of has a little bit of something for everybody, but also maybe nobody. So stick around, you guys, and enjoy this week's episode on Tron Legacy. Ladies, gentlemen, morticians, welcome to the morgue. We have a new film on this lab tonight. Now we begin. I'm going to go ahead and introduce this here, guys. Welcome to Did We Hate This Movie. I'm Silvio Emery. This is Annie Neller. And today we are going to be talking about the 2010 fi- Is it 2010, 2011? Yeah, it's 2010. Whatever. Yeah. Tron Legacy, the sequel to the 1980s sci-fi Disney movie. And let's... What did we expect going into this movie? Annie, let's start with you. Oh, God. <sighs> um... So I had already seen Tron Legacy before. I actually saw it in theaters, and it's aesthetically, it's quite a beautiful movie, although vacuous, as we'll talk about later. <laughs> and then I had also seen the original, which um, Silvio, I know you've heard me say, I think is totally unwatchable. So those were my expectations, potentially unwatchable and lacking in story and narrative thrust. What were yours? Okay, well, my, I, I have also seen this in theaters, so uh, my expectations are pretty much on the same. But what I, I, I want to talk about briefly my expectations going into this the first time, because I can still remember some of that context. Okay. And I was not terribly excited for the movie itself until they announced the Daft, the, the Daft Punk soundtrack, in which case I was like, what the hell is going on? And... Ultimately, I didn't expect it to be good, because Tron wasn't good. But, you know, I I came out more entertained than I expected, and also that soundtrack kicks ass. Yeah, it definitely does. Definitely. Um, I mean, is there any more interesting context we can talk about this? Because I feel like we're kind of on the same page here, and we're going, Context? "Eh, Did you expect it to be good? Nah. I actually do have some interesting, like, weird contextual stuff. Um... So basically, Disney brought this property kind of like out of, like off the shelf, I guess we'll call it, in um, 2009. So they started filming this. And their hope with this was basically to create a kind of like CGI, uh, I don't know, I guess you would call it like a minimalist Pirates of the Caribbean type thing where it's a film franchise. And originally, it was supposed to be made up of three separate films. So um, kind of also in the vein of Star Wars. We had talked a little bit about that earlier, Silvio, too. Um, We're going to talk about Star Wars. Very heavily. Yeah, because there are some things that this film is trying to do that it just it totally fails at. Um, so what's interesting about it is that actually the film Tron Legacy did so poorly at the box office 
that uh, the director, Joseph Kaczynski, still attempting to argue for a sequel in 2011 with Disney. Um, and Disney told him, no, your film cost $150 million. You made $400 million, which is not good. It's not a good yield. Uh, so they told him no. They brought it up again in 2015, so like as late as two years ago. They were desperate to try and do this again, to try and somehow reboot the Tron franchise, and it completely and totally failed. So I think that's what's really interesting about this franchise itself is that for some reason, um, people are really interested in bringing it back, and it's just it's not working. It's not working at all. Actually, what I find interesting about this, and one thing I want to talk about before we get to the film itself, is the trailer. I remember the first teaser trailer, which appears nowhere in the film. Yeah. And I find that interesting. I remember there was, I think, a green bike, a guy is scared, and then a guy kills him, and that guy turns out to be uh, zombie Jeff Bridges. Yes. Yep. I, think I remember that. So, to me, what that says is that... They spent a long time working on this before they had the story nailed down. Yeah. And I think you can see a lot of that because this film, there's no franchise to Tron. There are more references to Tron than there is Tron itself. Yeah. My first exposure to Tron was from a joke in Dexter's lab. <laughs> really? You huh. know, light cycle program, activate. Oh, okay. Bloop, 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 bloop. Okay. Yeah. You remember that yeah, one? Yeah, I actually do. Master Computer. Huh. Yeah. No, so, like, and you can see, I think, the biggest problem with it is that they tried to tie it to the old film and didn't realize that their foundation was rotten. Yeah. Yep, exactly. And I think that shows even more looking at this seven years later. Because uh, I think, like, 2010, that's still when, like, iPhones and so on, like the I I I don't want to say pre digital, but pre like ubiquitous digital. Well, and I think it's also pre most of the Marvel franchises, except for Iron Man. So this is kind of around the same time where the Disney Marvel properties are getting rebooted, and so they have somebody like Kevin Feige, whom I'm sure, or Kevin Feige, however you say it. God damn it. I think it's Feige. It's Feige. Okay, good to know. Um, I think. Don't quote me on that. Okay, we're sorry, Kevin Feige. Feige. Either way. Also, that I think that Iron Man was still when they were Marvel. I don't. Th when was the Marvel? You're Disney right. Murder? It was still when it was just Marvel. Um. Yeah, because it's really once Disney acquires Marvel. I know this sounds like a lot of technical details, but that was really when they got Kevin Feige, who had this kind of creative vision about how this project could work. And that's okay, what actually, mean. this is interesting. Yeah. This is interesting because that was in 2009. Okay. What the hell? Has it really been almost 10 years? Yes, it really, really has. Yeah. What the fuck happened? I don't know. It's so weird um, to kind of, like, think back on it. It makes me feel very aged, I guess. But it's... Yeah, yeah. But, like, that's the kind of person that you need to helm a major, like, trilogy series or something. You need somebody who has a very vast vision, who can kind of control, essentially, all of these interlocking parts. And I don't get the feeling Please that they have this. Be very careful. You're you're getting very close to fil to filmmaking ubermensch here. Yeah, um, I understand that, uh, but like that's 
I'm talking specifically about the business model, like how the business model oh, yeah. works, um, because they work with formulas. So, yeah, no, artists don't take that as me being like, screw individual agency. That's not. That's me talking about how it works um, in terms of like the business model and like how the studios think of doing a sequel, like a series. Anyways, so I've had a little bit of audience feedback, and I think... And I'm not going to name names because right now our audience is like three people. Yeah. <laughs> but I have heard that I dominate the conversation a little bit. So, Annie, what? let's go ahead and let you do the summary this oh, time. Oh, God. Because this is a very simple film, and I'm, I know I'm the note-taker, yeah. storytelling kind of guy. But I think we can manage this You one. know, Silvio, luckily this film was actually simple enough that I can remember most of the plot. It's sad that my memory is this <laughs> shot to death. Okay. So, basically... Um, Jeff Bridges from the original movie, he's back. But the story kind of starts off with his young son. So um, his son, Kevin. Oh, wait. That's, that's Jeff Bridges. <laughs> oh, I fucked up the summary already, you guys. This is why oh, I usually no, and That's the worst thing is you use Kevin. Kevin. That's, that, that's, from a, that's from a comedy routine. Hey, Kevin, you like it? You like it when I give you a white boy name? <laughs> You, you know the one I'm talking I can't remember who did it, but you know the one I'm talking about. I do, about. and I also remember Kevin from Reddit, and that's what I feel like right now. I feel like Kevin from Reddit. Um, so basically, oh, Sam Flynn lost his dad when he was younger. His dad completely disappeared from his life, leaving him with his elderly grandparents. Um, we're shown Sam when he's a little bit older. It's stated in the film that he's 27. And basically, his dad's company has grown into this utterly massive corporation that's about to premiere a brand new operating system. Um, I think it's NCOM 10, I believe. 12. 12. All right. Numbers, y'all. Numbers. Um, so um, Garrett Headland's character, Sam, goes to the company um, as kind of like a a thing to resist this because the software is not going to be an open operating system, which um, Sam firmly believes in. It's going to be something that you have to pay for. So Sam goes in, steals the software, implants an adorable GIF of his dog, who's a Boston Terrier. <laughs> and um, she's biased. He is biased. Um, as all I said, you were. Oh, biased. I am biased. Well, all Boston Terrier owners are biased. Let's be fair. Um, so Sam then goes home where um, a guy from the original film, I think played by Bo Garrett, comes to visit him. That's um, uh, actually... Who is it? Wait, Alex who Bradley. Is it? No, it's not Bo Garrett. That's a no, supermodel. No, it's a Bruce Boxleitner. Yes, who was, as I said, in the original film um, as Alan. He also played Tron in the original. Uh, so I'm sorry. I'm just looking at his IMDb credits right now. Known for Babylon 5, Tron Legacy, Tron. Oh, dude. I'm so sorry, Bo Bruce Boxleitner. Also, Boxleitner? Mm, interesting. Okay. Um, so Alan goes to visit Sam Flynn and tells him that he's received a page coming from somewhere inside Kevin Flynn's old arcade. So Sam um, kind of resists this initially, but he ends up going to his dad's arcade to see what's going on. And, uh-oh, the super cool machine from the first movie is back. And then he gets 
put on the grid. It also plays separate worlds. It does. Someday love will find It does play separate Actually, worlds. I have that as a note at how meaningful and perfectly timed those lyrics are, but... <laughs> uh, doesn't it play another song, too, from Eurythmics? Sweet it Dreams? It also plays... Yes. Yeah. See, I can remember specific. That one's less synced up, though. <laughs> Very specific details, but not the overall. Because no, I, I have it written down here, and the point where he's discovering the portal to the other world, where he's discovering the is someday love will find you, break those chains that bind you. And I'm going to get into that because that's actually pretty important in a weird, dumb way. Yeah, I'm going to have to roll my eyes at that lyric for this movie. But I no, I understand the need to explore that. Okay, so Sam Flynn, put on the grid. Oh no, Sam Flynn now needs to fight in something known as games, which is kind of a battle royale style of fight with what can only be described as a light frisbee that can kill you. So Sam goes into the games and he's just trying to get out, ends up fighting with someone known as Rinsler. And this is where we kind of come to a point in the story where we realize that Clue, played by um, scary Jeff Bridges CGI, <laughs> has actually... Zombie Jeff Bridges. Yes, yeah, zombie Jeff much. Bridges, as we will refer to him for the rest of this podcast, has actually taken over the, basically the universe there um, and is kind of controlling things. So not only this, Sam is rescued by Cora, played by the very adorable Olivia Wilde, while he is on a light cycle track, fighting with motorcycles, of course. Um, and there he is taken back to his dad's house, and he finally finds out his dad was actually alive. So in an attempt to protect his father's disc, which contains all of the information that Clue would need to say, I don't know, make it out into the real world with his super army of uh, crazy program people. They attempt to protect this disc, um, and also Sam goes to a super cool club where he tries to find out who Zeus is and whether he can get resistance fighters to help him to get out of the game itself. Basically, um, the film ends, spoilers, with the death of Jeff Bridges, who reassumes Clue, that is zombie Jeff Bridges, into himself in an attempt to save his son and to also save Cora. And at the end of the film, Cora and Sam are seen driving on a motorcycle, um, experiencing the real world. And Zombie Jeff Bridges' army didn't get to go there, which is pretty cool. In fact, they all died, despite the fact that they were innocent innocent people press-ganged into being stormtroopers. So, exactly! Yay, yay! The whole world was destroyed. Yeah, I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> Okay, kind of so um, <laughs> that's a pretty good summary. Was it? What? Was it? <laughs> so oh, yeah. I think it's good enough for our purposes. Okay. And let's be honest, no one is going to get on our ass about getting the details wrong about Tron Legacy. Sorry. Yeah. If there right. are, then okay, let's go. Come at me, bro. This is gonna be Come weird. Come at me, bro. Yeah. All right. So, <laughs> so now that we've done my awesome summary, um. Oh my goodness. What did we see, Silvio? 
Like, what did you think was what, redeemable? What did we see? <laughs> okay. Um. Okay. Well, since you gave me the first high point, I'm gonna I'm gonna just jump ahead and take the soundtrack because <laughs> suck on it. Yeah. The soundtrack is amazing. It's incredible. It's thrilling. It was. I believe this was before Random Access Memories, right? Yeah, it was. Yeah. So this was kind of the first like Daft Punk album in years and I was so thrilled to see it and it lives up to it like you can listen to any of the soundtrack outside of this and the thing is for all the pacing issues and all the weird stuff in this movie the the big spectacle fight pieces all those stuff are basically all fantastic music videos they're all synced up well to that and if you're not thinking about it too hard and you know I hate that oh just turn your brain off bro approach to film criticism but when you're in that moment, it feels great. There's so many good tracks and so many good moments where they're just really powerful. It's great. I love it. Okay. Yeah. I find myself coming back to the soundtrack a lot, actually, because I really enjoy it, too. But I like this idea that you've come up with that this is basically a Daft Punk music video or, like, several Daft Punk music videos that have been intercut together. Have you seen, have you seen Interstellar 555? Yes. Okay. One more yep. Yeah. That's essentially how I view this movie. Like, through that lens, I would absolutely watch this a hundred times. Yeah, definitely. But otherwise, yeah. <laughs> well, we'll get to that in a second. So what What else did you Um. I took the soundtrack. You can't do it. That's my turn. Damn now. it, Silvio. You took the one fully <laughs> redeemable thing from this movie. Okay, there are a couple of performances that I actually do really like in this movie, and there are a couple that we'll talk about later. <laughs> So the performances that I do like, actual Jeff Bridges. This is a surprisingly shitty movie um, in terms of storyline, and I do feel like Jeff Bridges' acting in this film makes it kind of weirdly magical in the moment that you're watching it. He has this kind of, I don't know, it's like he's bringing back some of his his dudeness. I can't fully articulate it beyond that. Um, dudeness, that, dudeness that works that's he's very dude he's very dude he's very zen um bio digital jazz man. yeah his look is very god the father um especially in the club scene with caster so i actually like oh, yeah. jeff bridges performance i did really like michael sheen's performance to as caster zeus which i know you didn't like silvio um because you felt like it was too dead on as bowie but yeah, I, yeah, I just I don't, okay. Here, here's here's the here's the dividing point for me. I recognize that it's a cool and fun performance, and actually, like I feel like I'm disagreeing with critics at the time here because I did look a l- up a little bit at the critical responses, and a lot of people said, you know, uh, that Michael Sheen was a nice change of pace from everyone else being a little bit flat, and he's fun. But what to me kind of kills this performance is the scene where Clue takes the disc, leaves him the drink and then fucks off and leaves them to die in an explosion. There, all that manic energy and the kind of delight, he becomes a scared, pathetic little man, and I, I don't like that. And that's why I say it might probably diverge. Like, if you had Bowie for that, you'd have written him out a stronger ending or something. But he's just, he's just indulgent and superficially so, I feel. I feel like, you know, he, he played, and there's some complexity to that because he's playing both sides. You know, he's like a mysterious figure that the resistance relies upon, but he also has an arrangement with Clue. And that's interesting, but ultimately it's not explored enough and it just makes it, 
it adds to the impression I get that it's an affected persona. And actually, it it does help that because you realize he has impunity. None of those shock troopers are supposed to kill him. That's why he can dance and shoot his little machine gun walking stick. Because he has impunity. And I feel that takes away from his character a lot. Yeah, I think that's a really that's a really good point. Because I do like the performance on a surface level. Um, I feel like what he's doing there is playing a kind of like pop culture figure. Like obviously he is playing Bowie. But it feels like if he was playing Bowie as a kind of somebody who had this psychopathy, psychopathic current running below the surface, where it is, it's very mask-like. It's very, it's like hyper-performative. Um, reminds me a lot of like 80s movies, not necessarily Labyrinth. I'm thinking something more absurd than that. Probably Hudson Hawk. Uh, where a lot of the performances are overtly and subversively absurd for the purpose of being absurd. Um, so, oh boy, Hudson Hawk. Yeah, that's actually another one that we should take a look at at some point. But, um, but yeah, so I, that was one performance that I sort of connected with, and I was kind of like, okay, I, I kind of like this. Well, we, we've done high points. Let's do some low points now. And I'm going to bring up what I think might actually be a controversial low point. I did not like Rinsler. Really? And here's the thing. See? See? Wait, really? See? Here's the thing. Rinsler is a really cool design. And he has a really cool... I, I guess super the kind of... Uh, that, that weird growl he does. It's kind of cool. I think it's kind of a cheap trick. But here's the thing. I think he moves like shit. Like, he does all these cool acrobatic lifts, but he does them and then he pauses. He doesn't... He feels like... A gymnast doing a routine it doesn't feel fluid and it doesn't feel like a natural thing so like especially i think there's one moment where he goes to secure uh cora after like she decides to leave her disc and go be a decoy or whatever yeah. it doesn't make any sense where he sees her and like he could go to her in like a second but instead he does a sideways cartwheel flip into a crouch does that snap-up head turn, then runs along the thing, does another flip, and then lands in front of her, and then pulls out his twin disc. He's just... They tried way too hard to make him cool, and as they a did. result, I feel like it really feels like he's not threatening. Yeah. Because it's too like, over the he's top. Kind of the inverse, he's kind of the inverse Cronid. Okay. Whereas, you know, you know Cronid from uh, Hellboy? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because Cronin... Is it Cronin or Kronig? I think it's Kronig. It's Kronig. Yeah, Kronig is so economical in his movements. Rinsler moves to show off. Oh, yeah, and that's... Yeah, he sort of comes off at different points in the film as being kind of like, you know that high school kid who's like super into gymnastics and they're super ripped and they're just like, I'm awesome all the time. The ladies love me. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> that is definitely how... I'm sorry, when... You <laughs> when you said the kid from high school, I was going in a completely different direction. I was going, while you were playing sports, I studied the blade. <laughs> I was going for that kid. Oh, okay. Yeah. Behold my kata! Yeah, yeah, yeah! Yeah, I was definitely thinking... This is like, Nippon Steel, like, 1,000 folds. Absolute show-off. That is what I was thinking of. Yeah, no. I'm pretty sure he does a wheelhouse kick for no reason at one point. Oh, he 100% does. No, I was thinking of Rinsler in kind of like that game cubicle that they had. Like, that was the one moment where I was kind of like, okay, this guy is kind of intimidating. 
outside of that, he was not. And I think it's for the reasons you're describing. Yeah, I want to point out, actually, this is, I think, you bring up the, uh, the disc-throwing arena. Here's the thing. Here's what I think is probably the most intimidating shot of Rinsler. It's when he knows that the cube is going to sh- rotate, and Sam doesn't, and he just starts running away from him. Yeah. And you're like, what the hell is he doing? He's running away. But then the cube starts rotating, and you just see him, and he's just running, and he knows exactly what he's doing, and he's moving with purpose. Yeah. There, he's amazing and scary, and in the rest of the movie, I don't give a shit. See, I think that comes down to probably, like, directorial stupidness, in part. Um, and, I mean, and maybe also, also writing. I feel like... Well, also, I feel like, you know, his heroic sacrifice is kind of unearned, and also it doesn't do anything. Yeah. Like, I, I think I would be okay with it if Jeff Bridges, if, you know, Clue had to find a different way to get to the point. Or if, you know, it had injured him at all. Right. But I feel like, oh, yeah, and it's just, I fight for the use. It, it's just such a designed moment, and I don't feel like it actually has any impact. Well, and it's, okay, we're going to have to talk about the storyline in terms of, like, what we think this actual story arc is. Because I know that you're seeing it as Star Wars I'm actually seeing it as the Selfish Prince storyline, and I don't think that it fully completes what that storyline is actually supposed to be. So, Tell me more, because I don't know the Selfish Prince. So the Selfish Prince is an archetypical folktale storyline that you see. Um, It's actually part of the Beauty and the Beast lore, the folktale of um, the prince who is extremely selfish, to a certain extent, like, as in he keeps to himself, he does not take up the duties that he, that are his birthright, um, and as such, the kingdom is going to shit around him, and because he's so selfish, he's condemned either to another realm, or he's given some form of disfigurement to essentially teach him a lesson. And throughout the storyline, the selfish prince comes around by learning that he has to be unselfish, that he has to love unconditionally, um, and kind of like loving without getting anything back. Okay, I have a question for you. Yeah. Who do you apply this story to? I think this is supposed to have worked for Sam Flynn. I think that's what the storyline, at least for the beginning half of the film, was supposed to set us up to feel like. Well, here's the thing. I think it much more readily applies to Kevin Flynn. And by the way, yeah, that is his name, Kevin Flynn. So you were kind of right. Kind of. It's his dad. His dad is Kevin. Because here's here's the thing. I, I, I kind of like that interpretation. But when you look at it, that's kind of what Jeff Bridges did, is he was more concerned with bio-digital jazz and exploring the digital frontier than he was with his family. And ultimately, he sacrifices for family. Right. Um, yeah, he... See, but that's part of the problem, is that to have two storylines that are that similar competing within the same narrative, like, that's where I see the problem in this film, is that you have two selfish princes. That does not work. (laughs) Um... You can't do that, especially for something like this. So I think, um, I know I've told you this before, but I honestly could have done completely without Sam Flynn um, for a variety of reasons. Absolutely. 
Uh, I think he overcomplicates the storyline, and quite frankly, I don't think he's redeemable as a character or interesting. Uh, and I also think that the actor that they chose to depict Sam Flynn is incredibly bland. Um, I've seen Garrett Hedlund in a couple of different movies now. He was also in Pan, which was a critical failure, um, where he's doing some kind of strange ham acting thing. Um, okay, okay let, let's not talk down Pan too much, because I'm pretty sure that's the one where you've got Hugh Jackman singing Nirvana. Um, yes, it is. I mean, I, 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 the other thing is, I don't want to use like phrases like critical failure dismissively, because there are some really interesting and fun movies that are critical failures. I just, you know, say like, you know, you know what I'm saying? I'm not trying to be entirely dismissive of him. I think what I'm trying to say is that I feel that Garrett Hedlund's reach as an actor is, like, I think he's meant to be a tabula rasa in this film. He's meant to be kind of like a blank slate, sort of like an audience surrogate to a certain extent. Um, kind of like a Jai Courtney? Yeah, <laughs> kind of like a Jai Courtney, which then makes me wonder, okay, who is this film actually supposed to be for? Like, is this supposed to be for a 14 to 16 year old boy who is going to go and see this and think about be like, right. yeah, video right. games. I have a response to this. Okay. This movie is about the Gen Xer. And I'll tell you what, here's the thing. This movie is about Flynn. And you can tell that because you say Flynn and you think of Kevin. You don't think of exactly. Sam. No one calls him Kevin. He's Flynn. Yeah. He's God. Every other character is defined by their relationship to Flynn. Sam is his son who has come seeking him. Alan is his business partner who is basically in love with him. I like, like, 100% no, hear me out in here. love with him. <laughs> hear me out here because here's the thing. He still has a pager in 2010. Your father told me to keep it by my bed. I still do. That's not loyalty. That's, that's obsession. Uh, you have Encom, his empire, which is defined by his absence. You have Tron, who served him and now serves his surrogate and comes back to save him. You have Clue, who is defined by his directive and also opposition to him and, like, right. reacting to his impurity. Korra is, like, his, his adoptive daughter. The Grid is his creation. Everything in this movie is centered around Flynn. And I want to point to a particular shot. When he wakes, when he's meditating and Sam is behind him. Yeah. When he gets up, when he awakens, the lights come that room is dark. Yeah. And it lights up. Yeah. He is the source. He is the light. He is the heart of this entire world. Right. And I will also say, I had a really interesting thought. How cool would this movie be if you never saw him? Um... Mm. I'm not saying it would be... I'm saying, like, just... It it would be a really interesting choice. I think it would depend on how that's executed. So if I can't see him, but I can hear him, I think that would work. Um, or see, like, traces of him in some way, like see a figure leaving a room, something like that. That would be interesting. I don't know. I guess I think the images of Jeff Bridges in this movie are so iconic. They are great, and I'm. This is an alternative take. Yeah. Jeff Bridges is great in this, but he doesn't make the movie good. No, he doesn't. I'm saying an interesting choice to make this movie itself interesting yeah. would be to sacrifice Jeff Bridges. Because huh. 
I, I another storyline I could see going for this is like the Puppet King thing, where it's like actually we've been pretending he's there and he's really in resistance, but he's been dead for years. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, that kind of storyline. Yeah. Okay. Anyways, but yeah, uh, Jeff Bridges is King God and Lonely Prince all at the same time. Yeah, that's actually pretty interesting. I mean, there's so many different ways that they could have gone with the story to make it more interesting too like the other way that i was thinking is get let's get rid of sam flynn let's n forget the storyline about corporate greed um which comes off as hammy despite them having killian murphy delivering lines but the lines are shit so he can't do anything with them um which that's because of the specifically because of the three writers that they've chosen to write this um uh, but that's that's another thing that we can talk about. Um, ditch the corporate line. Have this just be a story about Olivia Wilde as his adoptive daughter and him trying to either find hope again to get himself off the grid or sacrificing himself to get her out. Like that in itself to me would have made this movie ten times more interesting than it actually was. Okay, I actually want to go back to something. Okay. Uh, because I love Jeff Bridges' performance in this. It's fantastic. And there's actually a lot of interesting stuff in there. But what to me is the greatest tragedy is... And this is part of what leads me down to my whole Star Wars route, which I think we'll talk about in a second. But it is the greatest tragedy that Jeff Bridges wasn't in the prequels or the sequels. Yeah. Because he's a he would make an amazing Jedi master. Like how the hell did they not did that not happen? How? It's midichlorian jazz, man. How did it not happen though? Like that's what I don't understand. It's so like that is so his jam. I, yeah, I don't it's get just it. he, it's him with the ropes. Um, so let's let's go back to my Star Wars theory for yeah. a second. Yeah. Is what I find interesting about this is this is a very you know Joseph Campbell hero with a thousand faces kind of story, where it's these very simple, very, you know, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Very archetypical yeah. acts and, you know, consequences. Uh, you know, the the resistance leader who gave harbor to the hero is killed in a betrayal. Yeah. You know, stuff like that. Stuff like that. And, uh, you know, the broken hero turns... Uh, the broken hero turned slave of the evil emperor betrays him and redeems himself in death. Mm -hmm. It's it's very Campbell. Yeah. And very. the thing is, when you have a story like that, you can have a boilerplate as hell storyline as long as the world is interesting. Right. Exactly. You know, Star Wars Star Wars was built on that. Lightsabers, blasters, Jawas, just Every part of the Star Wars universe is this interesting thing that we've obsessed over and we've, like, put into our culture. You know, you can hear that sound. That's Star Wars. Tron is that kind of story with a world that is designed to have no detail. None. And that is really weird. And I think the biggest example I can think of is the motorcycle arena. Because you have... This blank field with these rounded squares all around it. You have these multiple levels. And all the transitions between them, all the interesting geography, is shown to actually disappear when not in use. Yeah. So it is an absolutely blank slate that is 
actively blanking itself. Yeah, it's There's it's just, literally if a tree falls in the forest, visualized. If the tree, yeah. Yeah. So it's like I would. In if you told me this was happening, like if I had not seen this movie and you told me what was going, I would say, is this this like a weird deconstruction? And interesting, I think it might inadvertently be something like that because the vi the visual coding of this film is very transparent. There's white lights versus red lights. There's blue versus red. There's an evil spectrum of warm colors and a good spectrum of cold colors. And that's one of those things I hate about Star Wars is this idea of objective morality. Mm. And that is hard-coded into this. Now, what's weird, though, is it's also, you know, coded. You see the light and the dark, active versus passive. You see... Uh, Jeff Bridges, when he's the messiah figure at the beginning, he's dressed in white, his son finds him and so on. When he's in that dark mood where he's staring out over the clouds, preparing his plan, he's wearing black. When he w when he's wearing his robe, when he's attacking the club, well, not when, he's, when he defends the club, I guess, he has the light-up edges, which he didn't have earlier. So everything's visual coding. What this feels like to me at times is like if someone tried to build a short film to cap to distill down and capture the essence of a Star Wars movie in like five minutes. Yeah. Ve oh yeah, that's actually really interesting. Like distilling all of the archetypes and the storyline down. Like what is the story actually made of? But also the props. You know, they have the iconic weapon, the identity disc. You have, you know kind of force powers a little bit uh you have these interesting vehicles and actually i want to point out the big plane they take it feels like a world war ii plane and a lot of star wars was like composited and reshot with models world war ii fighter plane footage but look at the themes of the story it's about creators and fathers oh yeah it's about legacies and you know old orders um there's a it's about myth look at the entire club scene you've got you know uh, I heard there were users coming. It's like, you know, uh, you've got uh, Jarvis, you know, long live the loot users. You know, he's he's scared by the legend. There's everything about this is about myth. And it's about myth in a world that doesn't have a tapestry for it to be woven upon. So it's like myth in these kind of very pure, almost academic tones. Yeah. You see what I mean when I say like that's it feels like Star Wars boiled down to almost nothing. Oh, yeah, no, I totally agree with that. Um, we have all the archetypes here, and we have basically the entire story arc. Uh, yeah, you're right. I think that this is a very Joseph Campbell-type thing. I'm not sure if it's fully executed as well as some of Campbell's theory or some of the stories that he's looking at, but absolutely. I mean, it's archetypal to the max. Well, I mean, here's the thing. I haven't read Campbell. I really want to. It's been on my list for years, and I'm a piece of shit for that. But here's the thing about Campbell. From my understanding, Joseph Campbell's Hero with a Thousand Faces is not an instruction manual to write a story. It's a way of looking at stories. And there are so many movies and so many stories that just take it as like, okay, so you gotta have the hero, his humble beginnings, the call to adventure. It's like, this is why I can't stand Aragon. Yeah. Uh, like, did you read Aragon? Yeah. 
it's just it's so easy to paint the Star Wars notes on it that I just don't like. It. Also, it got off the rails and got really weird later. <laughs> Hilariously so. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. I think it makes sense having read Campbell myself. Yeah, pretty much. Um, oh my goodness, there's a lot going on with the women in this movie as well. That okay, I want to see if you've picked up on something with the sirens. Because I've got something I noticed. Okay. So go ahead with what you were going on about. Um, ugh. There's, there's actually so much going on in that scene with the sirens that it's a little awkward. It seems like everything, all of their activities are completely coordinated between one another, despite them being different women. <laughs> on top of that, you have um, kind of 50-50 um white women and black women, which is interesting. Uh, then on top of it, they're all played by supermodels, which is sort of fascinating. They also say the line, he is different, which I was like, is he? Or is he just kind of like a, a little sweet potato? Um, that was mainly what I picked up from it. Was there something else that you were kind okay. of... Okay, I want to I wanna pick up something you said. Um, you said there's a 50-50... Uh, first of all, let's go back to women in general for a second. Yeah. I think this is actually, this is a terrible Bechdel movie. Uh, yeah. And not, not that I encourage using that as like an objective measure of if something's feminist or not, but when you look at it, there is Cora, who is a love interest slash daughter, a possession, a thing, pretty much. You have the Sirens, who are a mechanical purpose. And have no agency. And then there's a, and there are a couple of female programs i think in the club who basically seem to serve a function of being prostitutes yep so that's the kind of mess but here's the thing about the sirens Mm. in particular uh only one is named and that's the white one that's uh she's not just white she's like super aryan too like blonde and blue-eyed continue yeah now here's the thing i'm saying it's a 50 50 spread white women black women that's the thing but they're not arranged in like a checkerboard pattern no the black women stand behind Sam. The white women stand in front of him. Yeah. And the way they're framed is you get white... When you get that shot from the front, you get white woman, black woman, Sam, black woman, white woman. Yeah. Ugh. Just... It's it's subtle, and Ugh. I don't think there's, like, a nefarious purpose behind it, but subconsciously, that's kind of... Gross. Eh. And... Yeah, kind of gross. Oh, yeah. No, like, this is... It's clearly colorful. They're also... Le- they're also led by Jem. Like, she, she yeah. seems to be the leader, so that's also a little bit more gross. Um, another thing I want to say with the sirens, and this brings back to a bigger problem I have with the film and its universe, so to speak, mm. is the program's feel too human. Yeah. Because here's the thing. I would like for Jem not to show up in the club. Because if you just leave it as is, then where they come out of the pod, they do it, they have dialogue with him, just survive, and then they go back into the pod, they fall asleep with this thing and closing around them. That's creepy as hell. I love that. It makes it feel like they're not people. And remember, no one's supposed to be people. They're programs. There's a fiction, there's a conceit to the whole thing that this is all happening inside a computer. And I don't feel like that is true in any sense of the word. Like, I felt that a little bit in the original Tron, 
but I feel like it just doesn't work in this movie. No, it totally died. And again, I actually, I have a real bone to pick with this because I do actually think this is the fault of the writers. Um, do you know anything about um, Adam Horowitz or Edward Kitsis? I know nothing about these guys. Okay, Adam Horowitz and Edward Kitsis both have worked on an ABC TV show called Once Upon a Time, which is well known for having some of the worst writing on television. On top of that, they also worked in Lost, which, um, while interesting, arguably had one of the most underdeveloped screenplays of probably in a lot of television history. Excuse me, J.J. Uh, Abrams told me about his magic box, so shut up. Yeah. Yeah, um, so part of the reason why a lot of J.J. Abrams movies don't necessarily work as well as people think they do and Lost doesn't work either is because Edward Kitsis and Adam Horowitz do not know how to write a third act. Although, based on what you're seeing in Tron Legacy, there are some questions as to whether um, they fully seem to be able to articulate this world in itself. And I think exactly everything that you're saying pretty they're pretty well known for making a lot of the mistakes i guess we could call them i don't know if they are intended to be mistakes it's very hard to say um but they're known for doing a lot of the stuff that you're pointing out deliberately as not liking um and also the stuff that i really found kind of like off-putting about this so i really really do think that part of the reason why tron legacy um is such an interesting failure is because of these issues with writing, uh, because there's not really an intact sense of world building. Like we get world building from the visuals, but in terms of story writing, not so much. Yeah. Now there's something else I want to point to regarding this. And the thing is, I would understand moving away from the whole programs and programs and making them more like people if it made the story more interesting. However, it doesn't. There's so much potential. Like, just a very quick example, just the thought I had randomly while watching the movie, is what if you made it so that they were running out of space? Because this is running on, like, you know, 30-year-old yeah. hardware stuck in a basement somewhere. Or is... So, you know, if it was in that, you could say, like, oh, the programs are self-replicating, they fill up the computer, they want to go out into the real world, because or else they can't move. It's like entropy in a closed system. It's like, that would be a really good way of making Clue sound fascinating and like be a compelling villain is like, he's there to freeze people. But no, he's just an evil guy who wants to take over the real world because we exist in the same space or something. But also there's a huge wasteland that no one's ever conquered. So yeah, he's, he's kind of like evil for the sake of being evil, which is another that's kind of been a, a critique of a lot of um, Disney villains. There's a over space the train to years. nowhere. Why is there a space train to nowhere? It's delivering supply. Well, we know why because there's there it's deliver delivering people to the cr literal crucible that makes them into stormtroopers. Right. You know, here's the thing: they get on that train or space flying squid box thing, whatever. The train. Let's call it a train. Without that knowledge. They assume it's there. So Jeff Bridges doesn't even question why that's a thing. So it makes me think that that already existed before the thing. So right. it, it, a lot of things just don't make any sense. Yeah, there are pieces of the puzzle here that don't fit together. 
And it may have been one of those things where the writers were like, you know what, honestly, like we're going to put this world together that is going to make people ask questions and that's what's going to get us to a sequel. Yeah, uh, and that's the thing. Clue asks some questions that are... He's so sapient. He's, he's too sapient, I'd argue, because he is a thinking and somewhat rational being. So when he's like, you know, did I not create the perfect system? You know... You betrayed me. Those are human feelings. And they, they feel kind of flat because, well, I mean, first of all, they're not that great on their own. And humans, you were talking about how essentially the the programs are too self-aware. Oh, yeah, yeah. I was talking about how Blue is too sapient. It's really funny referring to, I, I keep thinking I'm talking about, like, the dog from Blue's Clues. Yeah. Blue's become <laughs> self-aware. That would be great. It's just, you know, Blue, you're part of the perfect system. <laughs> that would be amazing. Oh, that, that would somebody be somebody make that. No, but what I was saying is, it, I think he would be more threatening and more sympathetic if he, ha if he rationally followed his program. Create the perfect system. Humans are imperfect. In that way, you could maybe see some sadness in Jeff Bridges' eyes when he's like, oh, you did everything I asked you to. You, you, you were perfect, but I made the mistake. And he kind of tries for that, but I feel like the script doesn't fully support it. It doesn't allow for it. And I think that's the thing, too. Like, I really like this idea that you pointed out um, earlier about moral absolutism, because I think what your idea would actually allow it to do is to also poke some holes in this idea that Jeff Bridges and the users themselves are infallible, because that's what it feels like. Um, and so to kind of give this moment where Jeff Bridges doesn't fully understand what his programs are doing and that they are kind of becoming a bit more autonomous in the execution of this program for the purposes of self-preservation, like, I think that would have been 100% more interesting than um, what the storyline kind of gives us here. So, yeah, uh, I totally agree with that. Like, Actually, that was kind of what needed to happen. Interesting point. What? Uh, interesting point. Uh, someone actually did the math, apparently, because they talk about how time moves faster inside the machine. Yeah. And apparently Jeff Bridges has been in there for a thousand years. Like, Tron time? Yeah. Sheesh. Yeah, which I kind of dig, actually. Now, here's... I mean... The other thing is... They just use the language... I feel like... It feels like bad sci-fi in the way that it uses technobabble to do things that have nothing to do with the technobabble. In mm -hmm. the original Tron, you could argue that, you know, the under we didn't have the understanding to really understand those terms, and they still kind of barely did the functions they said. Like, ah, oh, Tron is a protection program. It's like... Yeah. You know, it's like an antivirus, but it doesn't really make sense. But... It, it's doing a protector function. It kind of works. Here, Clue is like, I'm a helper function that also can't create things, even though I was designed to help you create, but also it's like a weird automated admin bot that also wants to conquer the world. It just, nothing makes sense. And that sucks because I think there's a lot of really interesting things you could have done. And I hate the moral absolutism. Just give me one shot. Give me one shot at the end where blue blue's red glow goes away and he turns white and you have a much more interesting ending i and that's the thing i hate about the star wars movies and 
it's more a thing I hate about the universe than the movies because I feel like the movies play with them in an interesting way. Like Darth Vader's redemption mm. to a degree, the fall of Anakin. And mm. I, I have issues with the prequels. But yeah, everybody in, does. In this, in this movie, evil is evil except for... And they do it. Rensler does it. He becomes Tron again at the end. Yeah. But they don't. But like I said, Rensler has problems because once he becomes Tron, he doesn't do anything. Actually, make that moment earlier. Take away I fight for the users. Have him turn white as he slams into Clue. Yeah. Do that. Change his light trail mid. It would be such a cool visual. It'd be cut such a cool scene. And they don't have that. They just. Don't have I, I hate moral absolutism. Also, they've got discount lightsabers. There was a guy with laser nunchucks. Did you see that? Yes, I did. Discount lightsabers is a great way to put it. Um, I'm also wondering, too, like, <sighs> like, did this need to be God versus the electro-fascists? Like, did we need to do that? Um, did we really need the great orange dictator? Yeah, the great orange dictator, right? The one who made a big speech to people who had no power to depose him anyways about how he was it's destroying the legacy of his creator. <laughs> Whoops. Yeah. Whoops. Accidentally relevant, 2017. What the fuck happened? That is also within a film in which, like, women are shoved away to have these kind of, like, almost handmade-esque roles throughout the film. Like, it's... They're are different readings of this that can be done now in the age of Trump that I think could not have been done in 2010. And that's part of why Tron legacy is actually going to remain important despite it's kind of failure to do some of the things that it sets out to do. I actually think that's why um, Tron legacy is so interesting. It's important to learn from movies like this and what they're doing and what they're not doing. Look, um, at least Cora has a better healthcare plan. Oh God. <laughs> somebody somebody give Cora health care, please. She's gonna need it. Her arm gets chopped off. But it grows. I love back. that detail I love that detail though, that he takes that bit of bad code and turns into a butterfly. That is such yeah. a good little moment. Like Jeff Bridges is fantastic in this. I also and here's the other thing that I think is kinda of funny about the ending, is I feel like they only say that Sam is coming back to the company and that he's gonna be uh, take an active role and take it over. And by the way, it's so weird that he hasn't sold off shares. That he's, because apparently he's a majority stockholder, which is weird. Uh, yeah, it's it like make the any company sense. does, the company does shit that he doesn't want. But apparently he has the power to stop them. He just doesn't care enough. Like that's the thing. He has this Arrested Development where he's more obsessed with his father than he is with any, and he has that luxury to do that because apparently he's making millions. He's got this crazy nice apartment that built out of boxes that also has his Ducati in it, but overlooks the river. It's... Ugh. Again, like, I, that's part of the reason why I really don't like the character of Sam Flynn, is because he does come off to me as sort of like the selfish prince character, and I don't know that, even though they want us to believe that he sees something in Korra, I don't think that he and Olivia Wilde have enough chemistry for that, and I also, I kind of see her gazing at him with these sort of, like, almost adoring eyes because he's been outside into this world that, you know, Kevin Flynn has kind of taught her. It's kind of childish cool. in a way. It's, and it's childish, and it's, it's gross, um, and it plays into, I know people have been talking about this this week, the innocent sexy who needs to be kind of, like, rescued. It's sort of the princess in the tower um trope 
to a certain extent. Yeah. As I was saying, though, he's obsessed with his father's legacy, and he's obsessed with his dad. And I, despite that, I feel like he doesn't give a shit about his father's legacy. Because no. the whole thing was about how Korra changes everything. Philosophy, everything's up for grabs. And I think it's a dumb line, but, you know, Jeff Bridges does it somewhat convincingly. But when you get out, Korra's just his girlfriend. That's what it looks like. He yes. says he's going to go back to the company, but we don't see that. I feel like the ending is just kind of, yeah, you killed your dad. Good job. Actually, I almost feel like it's worse than that. I feel like because Sam is like almost oblivious towards Korra the whole time, um, the whole movie, like there's not really a moment where he looks at her and you sort of get this feeling like he really likes this person. Um, I actually feel like she then is going to be deprived of her birthright as someone who could potentially change the way that we think about all of these things that Jeff Bridges mentions. And then she gets shoved into this role of girlfriend and she's never going to be able to reclaim that birthright. But it's okay. She gets to see sunrises. Right? Which is just horrifying. Yeah. And there's one more thing. I want to talk about the couch pose and I'm not sure exactly what I want to get out of it because it's, it's weird because, you know, it's on the poster and I could like let that slide. It was just on the poster, but she sits there like basically at eavesdropping on like this big father son conversation. And she's in that pose. She's in like that very sexualized lounging pose. And you know, you can't, you could maybe dismiss the outfit as part of the world, but in that context, it feels really like it's sexy, but who, what is her, what is she doing as a character there? I feel like, She's an ornament, Silvio. <laughs> like, yeah. in that image that's on the poster, she is a thing. The only thing that she's paired with in that image is an object, and that's the couch that she's sitting on. So we are legitimately, as viewers, being invited to view her kind of in the same way that you would look at, say, female nudes in art. So pretty much anything like a grand odalisk, that's how we're being asked to view her. Which is really, really disturbing, and I'm glad that you pointed that out. They're typically posed in the same way, lying on a couch. Um, Manet's Olympia is actually posed in the same way that she is posed to. Um, And obviously there, there's like some sexual invitation that's going on. Yeah, but also, ah. here's the thing. Um, It's not shown... And I don't think it's implied that there's any instruction to do that. So the question that becomes then, no. like, is this, does Jeff Bridges teach her just to sit like that? That's, like, eh. Also, I think on this the is other supposed po- to be kind of like she's a free, a free spirit. Like, this is what she does. She puts her feet up on furniture. But she does it in a sexy way. But also, she's <laughs> like, can you tell me about Jules Verne? Is he nice? You know, it just, it it's really dissonant, and it's, it's grody. I don't like her, it. Her yeah. characterization does not make sense. And the thing that really kind of upset me about watching this again was I remember seeing an interview with Olivia Wilde um, early on when this film was being promoted. And she was like, you know, I really wanted to give somebody two girls who they could look up to, somebody who's not devoid of agency, who is cool and all that. I just, I, I don't see that here. Hmm. I don't see it. And I think that's probably a line, um, probably intended for just purely for the promotional package, which is sort of like, I don't know. It's just sort of sad 
I just thought okay, we're talking about this. I just thought of a change that would make this a would make this a really weird and interesting movie. What? Let's change Clue. It's not an image of Jeff Bridges. It's an image of his dead wife. Boom. Boom. Oh, jeez. Okay. (laughs) See? See? Like, ah. Oh, that would have been so weird and interesting and... Like, ah. everything, everything that I think doesn't work about this movie, it comes from this, like, this totemic cargo culting of the original Tron. Right. It's like, uh, uh, Jeff Bridges was important. We need all the Jeff Bridges. But Jeff Bridges is a really different person now. And where he's different, where he's old and gnarly and all the dude, he's amazing. Where you've got old Jeff Bridges, where he's like a young actor and despite the CGI, like that's, I don't care. Mm. Like, Rinsler is kind of cool, but like, doesn't do much. But when he's Tron, he doesn't do much because it's too little too late. Right. Now, actually, one last thing I want to talk about is the creepy CGI Kurt Ross. Not Kurt Bridges. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just watched Guardians of the Galaxy. It's going gonna, it's gonna to hit me. Ah, uh, don't spoil it. I'm not saying anything. Okay. But, um, like, how do you say this? The thing is, I remember people were talking about how, like, creepy and weird it looked. And for the first half of the film, I kind of didn't notice. Their, their use of him was very reserved. But do you feel like he got worse as the film went on? See, I think because right. I, I wonder <laughs> I if that was a deliberate choice correct. because it didn't feel that intrusive to begin with, especially in the scenes where he's in the real world and it's flashbacks and so on. But, and so halfway through the film, I was going, eh, I haven't really noticed. I guess it holds up better than I thought. And then when you get to the end, he looks like a PS3 cutscene. He does. It. There's actually, like, a lot of differences like if you look at screenshots from tron you can actually look this up and google will attempt to tag it tron legacy jeff bridges cgi face which is hilarious first of all but if you compare screenshots from the beginning of the movie to the end of the movie i think you're right silvio so it makes me wonder is that purposeful did they not have enough money to fully render his face or is this lighting what is this I can see two things. One, I can see it being a deliberate choice by the director to say that as we go on, he has this facade of being Jeff Bridges, and then he drops that, and he becomes more and more villainous, so he becomes less and less human. Yeah. But you could also argue that the script attempts to do the opposite of that and give him more human motivations. Did I not create the perfect system? You betrayed me. You left us. You did all that. So... I feel like it wasn't, and I could see maybe like the budget being eaten up by the first time, first half, and then going, oh, okay, let's cut down on the rest of it, and oh, let's cut down on the rest of it, so you get this kind of like decaying CGI budget. Yeah, because that would be what would make the most sense to me. Because the other issue with saying that this is, uh, saying that it's going from him being kind of like human to not human is. Zombie Jeff Bridges is the most identifiably CGI person in this entire film. Pretty much everybody else is played by, um, it, like, it's a human person whose face you can see. 
so it's not just somebody who is kind of like the body actor who's performing the gestures. I do so also think, though, that weird. makes this an important film because yeah. this, I think, was the first big case of this. And now you've got, you know, The Force Awakens. Not the, you've got Rogue One where they're bringing back Peter Cushing. Oh, uh, you know, yeah, you've got was... the stuff they did with with uh, Carrie Fisher. Yeah. You've got, and it's going to become more and more of a thing. And actually, I think that might be another reason why Jeff Bridges worked in the real world and not in the Tron world is because you have so much reference footage of him in organic spaces. But there's, like, I don't think there's that much reference footage of Jeff Bridges in cold, dark, black and white voids with blue lighting. Mm, no, except for the first Tron film where he looks like a newspaper cutout the whole film. Yeah. Yeah. So I think yeah. that might be part of it. There, there's multiple ways. I don't think we're ever going to get to the bottom of it. But no. it's interesting to think about. It is interesting to think about. And I think it's also causing people to ask questions about, okay, so like if you have an actor, like let's say, for instance, that Jeff Bridges had actually passed away during the production of this film, for instance, would the production company then have the right to continue using his image through CGI? Uh, um, didn't they do that in um, Gladiator? With uh, the guy who played Maximo? Did they really do that? Uh, Gladiator. Let's check Let's this out. Let's find that out, because that's really interesting. I'm really uh, interested in the debates on this, because it, there's some serious questions there. Not just death of the author anymore, but now death of the artist. What can we yep. do with an artist's heritage? An unexpected post-production job was caused by the death of Oliver Reed of a heart attack during the filming in Malta before all his scenes had been shot. The mill created yeah. a digital body double for the remaining scenes involving his character Proximo by photographing a live-action body double in the shadows and mapping a three-dimensional computer-generated imagery mask of Reed's face to the remaining scenes during production at an estimated cost of $3.2 million for two minutes of additional footage. Good lord. And that was in 2000. Lord, so that's been a precedent for much longer than I thought. Oh, that's so interesting. That's really really interesting i mean like obviously jeff bridges did not die during tron so he was able to give consent to use his image but there's also questions too about like the uncanny valley and is cgi actually advanced enough to do this and like when do you use a cgi actor's face well like, we'll see how things get on christmas and see how oh, i don't well, That's no, she did all her really filming did. for that, so that should be She fine, did, but. yeah. It's a question about the later films as well, because as I understand it, the Star Wars franchise was supposed to have more of General Organa. Like, a lot of the script writing was built around her, so... We'll see. But yes, so Tron introduces us to a lot of <laughs> interesting problems when it comes to doing CGI, when it comes to writing stories for a very complex epic film. How do you do that? I think also stuff. what's interesting is, and this is subtle, and I could be totally off base here, but I feel like it kind of heralded a resurgence in electronica music. Yeah, definitely because did, the I feel like, so uh, well, the soundtrack was fantastic first of all, but Daft Punk came back, and that got played everywhere. Like a lot of people were playing that, and that leads to stuff like the Glitch Mob getting big. Yeah, and now I, I think you can probably trace those roots all the way to like Vaporwave today. I think you could also say, though, that, too, like, this contributed to people's interest in EDM. 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like the explosion of EDM, I think partly is actually coming from Tron and these sort of cultural resonances of the Tron soundtrack in popular culture. So, like, that's part of the reason why I really wanted to do this film is because I love things that don't do what they're saying they're going to do, but also start these really rich and kind of like deep conversations. Like, this film is asking a lot of questions and also provoking some cool stuff in popular culture that really just still kind of resonates. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm checking my notes. Oh, yeah. Um, that's another, I, I kind of like it. I also kind of don't. The foreshadowing that Rizzler, Rizzler is Tron is the fact that he has two identity discs. Right. I mean, it's kind of dumb, but it kind of works, but it's also kind of dumb. So let's, let's go into final thoughts. So Annie, yeah. why don't you lead us off? What did you think of this movie? Like overall, did we hate this movie? That's actually a really complicated question. Um, so I don't hate this movie. Um, I also, I don't love it. This is not something that I would watch regularly. It is something that I did enjoy watching. Um, I love, I like this movie for its failures and for the questions it's asking and for the conversations that it provokes afterwards. I dislike it for the stuff that's going on with women and people of color inside the film itself. And for the sort of, like, selfish prince storyline that they kind of attempt to go with. Silvio, how about you? What do you think? Do you hate it? Mm, I I don't hate it. But I also, <laughs> I like it in the sense that I like it as a visual treat. Yeah. And, but as a story, I find it severely lacking. And that's oh, yeah. complicated because you have to... You ha when you're looking at film, you're not just looking at a story. And that's kind of like when we were talking about Splice. Remember, I'd seen that almost ten years ago, and I remembered the plot. This movie's plot is awful, but this movie is beautiful. Some of the compositions are great. And some of them are beautiful and used for kind of asinine purposes, but that doesn't take away from their artistry. So I enjoy looking at this movie. Yeah. And I enjoy watching it because those action scenes... Like, that music is built for it. Those are some amazing scenes. But as the whole, I feel like I take very little away from it to talk about and think about after. It's just fun while it's there. And it's not the greatest time afterwards. It's not going to stick. No, it's not. I mean, it'll stick um, with us because we're nerds who like to argue about stuff. But Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I guess, you know, if you're really into Campbell's storytelling theories, maybe it's for you. Or hell, if you even just want to watch something passively that is aesthetically pretty, um, with pretty people <laughs> in it, um, and also Jeff Bridges, for those of you who really do still think that the dude abides, which he does, um, this is probably a film that you will actually want to watch. To be fair, the dude does abide. I, I love Jeff Bridges in this. Yeah. But also, if you want Jeff Bridges in this, just go watch The Big Lebowski. Like, he hasn't aged that much between the two movies. Or Seventh Son, which is, like, even... Oh, can we do Seventh Son? We should do Seventh Son, because... I had some I... thoughts about that. <laughs> I actually hate that movie, so... So, we'll be back later when we actually hate this movie. But for now... Eh. Nah. Alright, anyways, I've been Silvio Emery. You can follow me at twi on Twitter at DoubleDocMD. I've been Annie Neller. I'm still in grad school. No one can find me. 
No one. No, no one. one at all. Thanks Bye -bye, for listening. Guys. <laughs>